Well, this morning is it's a, um, a sort of a time of confession for me. And I, I say that half jokingly and half serious. Some time ago, while uh, preparing our next sermon series uh, for us here at Richmond, myself and the, the rest of the team, we were um, chatting about which gospel we wanted to go through and share with you lovely people. And we spoke about you know, the gospel of Mark, and we spoke about how we see Jesus' human emotions in Mark. And we spoke about Luke, and we spoke about the way that Luke wrote about Jesus' passion for those, the marginalized, the ones who had been rejected. We spoke about Matthew, and Matthew is a theme which we are well familiar with here at Richmond, right? The king of kings. But then we got to um, John, and here's my confession. Like, I, I don't know how we got to this title, but we called him Fluffy John. <laughs> and the first thing that came to all of us when we spoke about John's gospel was this happy, lovey, dovey, fluffy gospel. And one of the reasons why we, we come to this conclusion, there's a few reasons, but one of them might be because you know, the word love is used about 57 times in this gospel, which is more than the other three actually combined. And, you know, we have these verses, you know, one which we heard read this morning, for God so loved the world, or as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Love, love, love. Well, with all this, one might think that John is a more lovey-dovey and fluffy gospel than the others, and probably more so than any other book in the Bible. But I think after spending time in this gospel this week, my, my confession still stands. Because it still stands that although that I see that John might appear a little bit more fluffy if we just superficially skim over a lot of these verses, in reality, this gospel of John is a really deep and it's a really powerful and at times a really confronting piece of work. And just because that theme of love is written about constantly over and over again, that does not mean that it cannot be confronting or even challenging. Because let's be honest, to love something, or especially someone, it can be really hard. It can be challenging. I know it is for me. I know I struggle with it. I could love so better, so much better. And just on a personal note, before we go on, I'm so grateful for the challenge and the comfort that this passage, passage has given me during the last week as I've had to sit in it and let it just wash over me. And I say that because, you know what, like for, for me, I never really grasped or I never understood the love of God as well as I understood other characteristics of God or other doctrines that we find in the Bible. You know, there's other things that I really understand. Like I understand that I'm a broken individual and then I'm a sinner and then I am in desperate need of restoration and that that restoration comes through our Savior, Jesus. I understand that. I get that. <clears throat> But it wasn't really until this week 
where I was forced to sit in the Gospel of John. Now, the reality of love's God for us, for me, really hit home. And it, um, there was some real transformative work in my relationship with God. And my prayer is that something similar happens to you here today, this morning. And if it does, or even if it doesn't, I would love if you would want to, to pray with you after. But let's jump into this Gospel of John. So John wrote his Gospel sometime after the other three Gospels are written, maybe 20 or 30 years after. And it was written both to supplement and also to complement these other three Gospels, which we know as the Synoptic Gospels. We say that because they're, they're very, a lot of like similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the Synoptic Gospels. Now, the Gospel of John is, is extremely evangelistic. Uh, it is an evangelistic piece of writing with the word believe written in it about a hundred times, which is more than, more than double of any of the other Gospels. And the heart and purpose of the Gospel of John can be found in chapter 20. And John writes this, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The core of this gospel and the, and the heart of what John wrote in this is that when people read the words that is contained in the gospel of John, that they will be moved to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. The gospel of John is a moving an intimate piece of work. It was written by a man who knew Jesus as well as anybody. Some of you will be familiar with the name that he receives, no? The disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a very, very close relationship. Let me read the passage for us. And it's from a passage I think some of us might be familiar with. John three sixteen to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This would have to be the most well-known, used, and loved verse in the Bible. Christians and and non-Christians alike are so familiar with this verse. But I would also suggest that it, it has been, and it can be, a misunderstood and sometimes even distorted verse for some people. And I feel that this, this, I feel that this misunderstanding, or maybe even a superficial understanding of it, um, is quite sad, because there are some inspiring, as we said before, some challenging and important truths that lie within it. And to highlight a couple of these understandings, I'm going to need to, uh, I don't need to, but I'm going to choose to pick on some people. For it. And the first person I want to pick on 
and it's not really picking on, but we're going to talk about him, is a really well-known character from today's chapter. And that person is Nicodemus. And we find Jesus chatting with this person, Nicodemus, just before uh, 3.16. It's from the beginning of chapter 3 to chapter 15. So we're going to pick on him. And the second one we're going to pick on is a more general or a more broader selection. Because we're going to pick on us. And, you know, when I say us, I mean Christians, actually. And especially modern-day Western Christians, which is a category that most of us could probably identify with, I would imagine. But before we get to us, let's have a chat and a look at Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was asking questions to Jesus about life, about faith, in this section from 1 to 15. And then Jesus begins to answer him, or no, he begins to teach him, I should say. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus through his teachings, everything he said would have absolutely blown Nicodemus away. Even though everything he said would have blown him away, there was one word that would have shocked him the most. In all this conversation they had, this one word would have knocked him flat. And that word is whoever. Now this word whoever is found in uh, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 it says that, that whoever believes may have eternal life. And then 16 says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But why would Nicodemus have been shocked by this word? Well, the first thing to remember about Nicodemus is he was no ordinary Jew. He was a Pharisee. And he wasn't just an ordinary Pharisee either. He was a leader of the Pharisees. In verse 10 it says, the, not a, but the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus knew the scriptures and he knew the doctrines of the Jewish religion really well. And I mean he knew them better than almost anybody. And it is precisely this reason for his in-depth knowledge that he would have been shocked by the word whoever when Jesus used it. And why? Because the Jews, they were adamant, they believed that when the Messiah came, he would save and rescue them, being the nation of Israel, and he would punish all the other nations. The Jews were certain that the Messiah was going to punish the other nations for their blasphemy, for their idolatry, and for their harsh treatment of his nation of Israel throughout history. That is what they were expecting. But then, Nicodemus is chatting away with Jesus, and he hears Jesus say that whoever believes in the Son of Man, being Jesus, shall have eternal life. I can see Nicodemus like saying, whoever? Really? Are you serious? Whoever? Jesus doesn't mention anything about the law. He doesn't mention anything about the tabernacle. He doesn't say anything about the Ten Commandments, about the temple. He doesn't mention anything about them. He simply says that this is all about the Son of Man being lifted up and that by believing in Him, whoever, anybody, can enter into the eternal life with God. As I said, Nicodemus was, would have been flawed after this. Why would God allow into his kingdom 
for people that are just believing in the sun? Why would he do that? What about the spot for all those people who kept the rules? What about them? Well, I can give you two reasons, two really quick reasons why God orchestrated it this way. The first is because no human, no human being can keep the perfect law of God perfectly. If we were to live our faith lives through the teachings of Judaism with that hope of uh, receiving salvation, then heaven would be a lonely, lonely place. We couldn't do it. There's only been one who has kept the perfect law, and we're reading about him today, and that's Jesus. But the second reason we find in the very next verse, in verse 16, God gives eternal life to whoever believes. Because here it is, in verse 16, for God so what? For God so loved the world. He loved the world. You know, that's what it all boils down to. God's motive for salvation is simply because of his love for the world. The reason that God makes salvation available to anyone is because God actually loves the world. It's simple. It's so simple. But for Nicodemus, it was absolutely shocking. Now, all this love, talk of love, it's, um, it's going to take us to our second audience, okay, who may have misunderstood something in, in this verse. And we know who the second audience is. It's us. And when I say modern-day Christians, I know I'm painting with a very, very, very broad brush. And if by the end of today's message you, you still want to come and talk to me, come and talk to me about it, one by one, please. I don't want to fight with a group, but I'm more than really happy to chat about it. So, okay, the other possible misunderstanding lies in this phrase. Lies in this phrase. Loved the world. In verse 16, it tells us, God so loved the world, right? And theologically, there's been a lot of debate about what, the, what that word world actually represents in the text. There are some people that have said that it is the chosen or the elect people. That's the world. That's what the world means here. There are other people that have said that the world means all creation, and I mean humanity, I mean animals, I mean nature, everything. But when we talk about this word world in this text, it just means humanity. It means all people without distinction. So God loved, and still loves, I might add, people. This is what it means. But here is where the misunderstanding or the confusion can start to creep in. People are sometimes misdirected in this verse. Generally, people's concentration, it focuses on the words, loved the world, which sometimes sways us to think that the world is something that definitely deserves God's love. There's something so special about it that it deserves God's love. But if we examine this carefully, it's not the world that is the main subject in this sentence. The main subject is God. The main subject is in the beginning of the sentence. For God, he loved the world. This is primarily about God. Our focus here should not be on the love for the world, but on the love of God, first and foremost, for the world. And this makes sense, because in reality... If we look at Scripture, 
the world, and remember that means humanity, is not really spoken about with great praise, is it? You remember the prophet Jeremiah? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or when Paul writes in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in Mark, it tells us, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I mean, that's heavy, right? We cop it in those verses. And then on my words, this is the prophet Jeremiah saying these things. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome about these things. And what we said in Mark, this was Jesus' own words. This is Jesus talking. But despite all this and much more that we find in the Bible, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Despite the mess that us humans really are, despite our absolute brokenness that our lives exhibit, God loves us. And he sent the thing that he loved more than anything else in existence to us, being his son, Jesus. And he sent him to die on our behalf. That's insane. This is beautiful, right? Moving, I would suggest. You know the crazy thing? A lot of the time when this story is told, and I'm speaking out of experience, I tell this story to you know, lots of people, as many as I can. A lot of the time when this story is told, the story of how God the Father sent his one and only son to die for us, we are frequently confronted with a question, a question like this. If God really loved the world so much, why didn't he send 10? Why didn't he send 20, 100, 1,000 different saviors? Why just one? And then sometimes they were like, I mean, if I were God, if I were God, I would have gone about this in such a more loving, graceful, merciful, correct way, and I would have been far more wise. I would have thought it through. We've heard that, right? I know I have. So often when I speak about the gospel with people, I hear this question and this, this, this argument. Our culture frequently tells us that a truly loving God would have provided a plethora or a smorgasbord of salvation options. And then any of us should be able to believe in whatever we wish. And that from there we should be granted eternity in the presence of our Creator. That's what our culture tells us. Well, if you are one of those people who is thinking about asking that question when you finally meet God, that's okay. But before you do, I would encourage you just to consider this scenario. Let's suppose, just suppose, that there is an actual God in heaven. And suppose that this God in heaven created the whole world, everything in it, everybody in it. He gave it color, he gave it relationships, he gave it beauty, and he gave it life. And suppose that amongst all these wonderful things, all the wonderful birds, creation, animals, 
all the life that exists. God gave the most exalted and the most authoritative position on earth to the creation that he created in his image, being us, being humanity. And some of the words that he spoke to this creation, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And he said to them, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And suppose that just after he created these, these first, his first people, the first people, in his image, what happens? But they revolt against him. They call him a liar, and they listen to his greatest enemy instead. And God tells these the first people, he tells them a very specific thing. He says, if you do this one thing, you are going to die. The people then do the exact thing that he tells them not to do, that he warns them not to do. And instead of allowing these people to fade away into their own decision, God says to them, I will provide a way for you to escape this judgment. So God then calls a man named Abraham. He calls him out of paganism. And God tells him that all of his descendants will be blessed. And that through these descendants, a great nation will come about. And that through this nation, the entire world will be blessed. Again, this sounds quite generous, right? This sounds like a patient individual. But what happens is this nation, it continually, and I mean continually, turns their backs on God. They continue to worship other gods and give themselves to these other gods. They continually grumble against God. They curse him. They curse his treatment of them and his supposed lack of love for them. They flat out reject him. But he stays with them. God stays with them. He stays firm. Forgiving them over and over and over again. Even more than just forgiving them, and even more than just remaining with them, what he starts to do is he starts to send them prophets. God is sending these people prophets, individuals who spoke to the nation of Israel on God's behalf. And he sends these prophets. He doesn't just send them. He sends them with tears in their eyes. And these prophets are desperately pleading with them and calling the nation of Israel back to this loving father. Over and over again, he sends these prophets. And what do the people do? They laugh at them. They beat them. They even torture them. And they even kill some of these prophets. Now, most people would think that, yeah, that's the last straw. You start killing these people I'm sending you. How much can one really love another? Right? But now suppose God does this. He says that even though you have rejected me from the very beginning, and even though you have been so unfaithful to me, like a cheating and betraying spouse, and even though you have mocked, hurt, and even killed some of the prophets that I sent to you, apart from all of this, I love you so much that I'm going to send you my only son. The one thing that I adore most, the thing that I am most pleased with, I'm going to send him to you. And I'm not going to send him to condemn you. 
I'm going to send him to serve you. I'm going to send him to love you. And I'm going to send him to save you from yourselves and from each other. So God sends his son, right? And then what happens? Where the people rise up. And I don't mean they don't rise up in praise, they don't rise up in worship. But they rise up against the very son of God who God sent and they murder him. They kill him. They nail him and they leave him hanging on a cross until he dies. One of the most excruciating and terrible ways of dying imaginable. And suppose, while these people are nailing God's son to the cross, God transfers all of the sins of these people, all of their deepest, darkest sins, all of their deepest, darkest secrets, and he transfers them over onto his dying son. And he does this so that he will bear the sins on behalf of the people. And finally, God says to the people, fix your gaze on this man who is dying in your place. He says, trust him and follow him back to me. And if you do this, guess what? No punishment. No death. No separation. Complete forgiveness. And instead of judgment, I'll give you something else. I will give you eternal life. Where there are no tears, there is no crying, there is no mourning, there is no pain, there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no darkness, and there's no death. Let's suppose he did that. Would you be able to say to him, God, why haven't you loved us enough? You may be thinking, ah, you've been a bit harsh. But by magnifying how truly hard it should be to love us as a collective, by magnifying this, this actually highlights the holiness and the uniqueness of God's love so much more. By taking the spotlight off of our lovability and by placing it on God because of his nature to love, this is where power and change begins to flow from this verse. I do not believe that anybody can read the, about, read the story of Christ or his mission of salvation to the world against a backdrop or a background of fallen and broken humanity that has been in constant rebellion against God from the beginning and really sincerely ask that question of, do you really love us? Or couldn't you have loved us a little bit more? A friend of mine back in Colombia, he wrote a book And the first sentence in this book says this, and I'm going to read it in both languages because there's some people that understand. So the first sentence in the book says this. Hay una paradoja profunda 
en el ser humano, lo que más desea y al mismo tiempo lo que más teme es ser conocida tal como es. What this says is there is a profound paradox in the human being. What we most desire and at the same time what we most fear is to be known exactly as we are. We want to be known intimately. That is what relationships are, to know each other to the core. But at the same time, that terrifies us, doesn't it? All of our secrets, all of our insecurities, all of our hidden flaws, all of our hidden sins, we don't want everyone, our best buddies, to know about these. There is one who knows every last thing about you, the good and the bad. And despite this, he loves you anyway. Much more than you know. And he offers this love to anyone who will believe in his son who sent us. He knows us to the core. And he still loves us. He still pursues us. And he always has. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let me pray. Lord, it is such a blessing to hear your voice loudly in the word of God. You allow us to understand you, and to come closer to you, and you bring us into worship of your essence and the character that you really are. Lord, as we read about your love, it does give us so much joy and so much hope. But at the same time, Lord, keep us humble. Keep us at your feet and help us maintain that balance. You are a God who deserves every single bit of us our heart, our mind, our soul. And we thank you for loving us the way that you do. And Lord, my prayer is that just a little bit of this love, we can reflect it to each other and to those around us. And more than anything, Lord, that we can give you back some of this love, that we can adore you daily. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.